A number of years ago, I was in South Africa for the Shepherds Conference there, and I was hosted by Joel James and his dear wife and their two children. And not only, not only was I hosted at the conference, um, I stayed in their home and had a delightful time. They were very hospitable and made friends, and I made friends with their teenage son, Daniel. And uh, lo and behold, we talked about wakeboarding, um, which is near and dear to my family. And uh, so we talked about wakeboarding. We looked at wakeboard videos and you know, during the downtime and pictures, and he seemed to be interested. And so I said to Daniel, I said, if you come to my house someday, you come to Omaha, uh, I'll teach you how to wakeboard. Be careful what you promise, um, <laughs> right? So he had to come from the other side of the world. Um, but when I got an email from Joel a few days ago and it said, Daniel would like to learn to wakeboard, I smiled and I thought, this is awesome. Uh, this is a great thing a few years later. So we went to the lake yesterday and uh, Daniel killed it. He just did awesome. He did a great job. And uh, so now Daniel, the famous wakeboarder, uh, his dad is here to preach. And so um, I'm really glad about that. Joel James is going to come and preach uh, in just a few minutes. Uh, Joel is um, in his 20th year of pastoral ministry in Pretoria, South Africa. So they're, uh, they're long-term. Uh, he also is the author of this book I have here and we have in our bookstore called Taste and See That the Lord is Good. He heads up the Shepherds Conference in South Africa. Uh, I maybe should say Shepherds Conferences because they do multiple ones. Uh, around the region. I've experienced them firsthand, and it's a great ministry to pastors, great ministry to churches in South Africa. Uh, and although he's from South Dakota originally, I want you to know that he's a graduate of the University of Nebraska at Lincoln. So his blood flows Husker red. So with that in mind, uh, the serious part and the not-so-serious part, let's give a Good Cornhusker, welcome to Joel James as he comes to preach. Thank you, Pat. It's a privilege to be with you in this church and to open the Word of God with you. And so I would ask that you open your Bibles to the Gospel of John. John's Gospel in the first chapter. We're studying John's Gospel in our church in Pretoria. And so uh, I want to take you to John's Gospel, chapter 1. We'll just be looking at the opening couple of verses this morning, but they are deep, and so there is much there for us to look at. The Gospel of John, chapter 1, we'll just read the first three verses as we begin. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. As a preacher, when I come to this verse, verse 1, especially of John's Gospel, as I come to this verse, I feel a little bit like an architect who has been trained to design houses and has now suddenly been asked, commissioned to design the Cologne Cathedral. This is a profound and deep verse. I feel like an insect, lost in the grandeur and the magnificence of our Lord Jesus Christ as we think about these few short words together. What John does here in his introduction to his gospel, what he does here is actually unique among the gospels. You think about it for a moment. Mark begins his gospel by speaking about the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry. That's how Mark starts. Luke and Matthew open by speaking about the beginning of Jesus' earthly life in Mary's womb. That's how they start. In comparison, John does something totally different. John streaks like a comet across the sky with a million-mile-long tail. You see, the other Gospels, their introductions are just little fixed points of light. But the Gospel of John, John starts it with this incredible blazing light, this, this path of glory across creation pre-existence, and deity itself. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. To start his gospel, John goes beyond all beginnings. When everything began, he says, the Word was. He was both with God and God at the same time, as John speaks of the Word, our Lord Jesus Christ. Leon Morris, one commentator in the Gospel of John, says this, quote, 
If that's a staggering affirmation that he was with God and God at the same time, if that's a staggering affirmation, says Morris to us, there's no reason to think that it was anything less so to the Jewish author of this gospel. When he thinks of the word, he lays it down unequivocally that nothing less than God's will do to understand that word. Unquote. In fact, I would suggest to you that if you were to sit down and read the Gospel of John, this opening verse, these statements here, these are the lenses, the lens through which you must read the rest of John's Gospel. If you don't start there where John starts, then you can understand, well, nothing that follows. You have to start right here. Here, John gives you the presupposition, the foundation, everything that's important about his gospel. The one of whom he writes, Jesus of Nazareth, this one is God. God in human flesh. Now, I want to illustrate that for you in a shocking terrible way this morning. I think it'll be distinctive for you, and hopefully the elders won't charge the platform and take me down as I say this. I want to illustrate for you the power of what John has said here about our Lord Jesus Christ. What if we took some of the names of some of the other founders of false world religions and inserted their names in John 1.1? What would that read like? What if we read, in the beginning was Buddha, and Buddha was with God, and Buddha was... We're not even going to finish that statement, are we? I mean, it just doesn't work. It's awful, isn't it? Or in the beginning was Muhammad, and Muhammad was with God, and Muhammad was God. I mean, that doesn't work. It's absurd. It's blasphemous. Frankly, not even a Muslim would ever think or say or accept that statement. Or... In the beginning was Confucius or Moses. Confucius was God or Moses was God. It doesn't work, does it? Maybe that helps you understand the crushing significance of what John says here in the opening words of this gospel. The crushing, pulverizing, shattering gravity of this opening statement in verse 1. Only of Jesus Christ... Only of him and no one else can you say this and not be saying absurd blasphemy. There is no one else in the history of the human race. There is no one else in the history of the angelic race. There is no one else of whom you can make this statement and have it not be sheer laughable nonsense. Of no man, of no woman, of no other being, Can you say what is said in John 1? Only of Jesus Christ, God become man, our Lord and Savior. With this opening line, what John has done is he's placed Jesus Christ in a category utterly by himself. Utterly by himself. He has no rivals. He has no competitors. There is no one like him. Now, as we begin, I want to point out for you a couple of things, and we're going to focus our attention on verse 1 especially, but I just want to show you the rest of the prologue or a couple of key verses. The key verses in John's introduction, usually called the prologue, are verse 1, verse 14, and verse 18. All of it's important, but those are kind of the the stakes in the ground. Verse 1 starts you off by telling you that the word is pre-existent gods. starts there. In verse 14, then, John says that that pre-existent eternal word became flesh. Well, now we know who we're talking about. We're talking about Jesus of Nazareth. Verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then verse 18 gives a, a primary reason for the incarnation. One of its primary reasons was so that the pre-existent eternal word could take on human flesh to explain God. Verse 18 says, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him, has exegeted Him, has exposited Him. The word, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ is a keyhole 
We would get down on our knees and we wanted to see the glory of God. We would peer through the keyhole of Jesus Christ to see the infinite glory of God in the room behind. And of course, although he is not mentioned here, certainly from later in the John's Gospel and all over the Scripture, we would add God the Holy Spirit as well. It requires God to explain God. Because God has no analogies, there's no one like him. It requires God to explain God. Jesus Christ can do it. He can do what no one else can do because he is co-eternal, consubstantial, God of very gods. He is not some subordinate sub-deity commissioned with a task that's well, a little bit beyond his ability, a little bit beyond his essence. He is not that. Jesus Christ is a living, breathing paragraph. A living, breathing book telling us in full, or at least as fully as we can comprehend, who God is. He is the connection between the eternal, infinite God, the eternal, infinite longings that God has put in our heart for Him, and the eternal, infinite God who fulfills them. Jesus is the bridge. God became man so that we might see Touch, taste, feel God. So that we might, in Jesus Christ, through his death on the cross and the forgiveness of sins that it is one, so that we might know our creator and in him have our sins forgiven and have all our deepest longings satisfied. Now, today as we gaze specifically at the sweeping, dizzying glory of this great cathedral of John 1, 1 and 2 in this prologue, uh, we're going to follow this outline. Let me give you a little outline as we begin. There's going to be three exalting truths that we're going to see about Jesus Christ here found in verse 1. Verse 2 really just sums it up. So these three exalting truths about Jesus Christ that are found here in verse 1, lifting him up on high, those three truths are he is God eternal, that's number one. He's God eternal. Number two, he is God distinct. And number three, he is God equal. That's how we'll handle this passage. God eternal, God distinct, God equal. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Now, the glorious, exalting truth about Jesus Christ that begins this little text in John 1.1 is that Jesus is God eternal. The opening line, in the beginning was the Word. In the beginning was the Word. Well, this is just a sheer, brute declaration of the preexistence of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He is God the Son. He is the Word. He has always existed. Since John says the word became flesh in verse 14, we know that it's Jesus Christ who's being referred to here. You assumed that, but just in case, John's gospel is new to you. We know that. The word became flesh. Jesus Christ is the one who's under consideration here. Now, it's interesting in John's prologue, scholars do all kind of bizarre gymnastics trying to speculate about where John got this stuff because it's fairly unique to the whole scripture. Well, here in verse 1, at least, there's no question where John got what he's saying. There's no question here because the opening words in arche in Greek or in the beginning are exactly the same. They're exactly the opening words of Genesis 1-1 in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament that John and the other apostles would have used. Exactly the same. And so it's critical to John, by taking you back to Genesis 1-1, it's critical to him that you understand that while all other things had a beginning, the Word had none. He is preexistent. He is uncreated. He is eternal. The verb was, in the beginning was the Word. The verb was there is an imperfect verb, and that tense denoted a continuing, repeated, enduring, ongoing action in the past. And so the idea is something like this. In the beginning, in Genesis 1, when God said, for example, let the earth bring forth living creatures. When God said that, the word already was. When God said, let the waters teem with swarms of living creatures, let the birds fly above the earth, God said that, the word 
was. When God made the sun and the moon and the stars, the Word already existed. When God gathered the waters into one place and caused the dry land to appear, the Word was. When God said, let there be light, the Word was. In the beginning, when everything else had its beginning, the Word already enduringly, perpetually, continually was. If you turn in your Bibles to Genesis 1.1, you don't need to turn there, but if you would turn there, you'd see that there's some white space before the first words in the beginning. That's where the Word was. He was there. He didn't become, He just was. Again, one commentator said, it's fundamental to John that the Word is not to be included among the created things. You see, the heavens and the earth, they became... Plants, animals, angels, Adam and Eve, they became. The physical stuff of this creation, it became. The word was pre-existing and eternal. See, with one stroke of the pen, John puts the word, our Lord Jesus Christ, puts him outside of the realm of everything you know. He puts him in an absolutely unique, glorious, exceptional category. You see, I mean, look around you for a minute. Everything you know, everything you see, became. Everything became. Everything you know had a beginning. You became. The people around you became. Everything you see, everything you touch, taste, feel, hear, see, it became. The word never became. When all else was starting in the first six days of creation... In those six days, he already enduringly, eternally was. One of the great doctrinal controversies of church history was Arianism. You might be familiar with that term. It comes from a man named Arius. Arius was a preacher in Alexandria, a city in Egypt, which was one of the major cities of the New Testament world. About A.D. 320, Arius started to preach sermons and write catchy little songs about Jesus Christ which included this following line. There was when he was not. That's Arius' theology wrapped up in one little package. There was when he was not. Arius argued the sun started. The sun began, S-O-N, right? The Son of God started or began. He did not exist and then he popped into existence. Arius was the original Jehovah's Witness, if you will. Denying the full deity and the full eternality of Jesus Christ. However, Arius' heretical notions of the word, of the word beginning, destroyed here in John 1.1. In the beginning was perpetually, enduringly, forever the word. When everything else began, he was. You say, wait a minute, Joel, I'm not sure about this. Wait a minute, maybe the word began just a couple of minutes before Genesis 1-1. You know, he was there when it was created, everything came into being, but maybe he started, you know, three minutes and 27 seconds earlier. Maybe all that John is saying is that the sun, right, the word's beginning, it's just a little bit further back in eternity past. Well, maybe you would read ahead to verse 3. All things came into being through him. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In other words, the Word is the uncreated creator. He is the uncreated creator. He, everything else started, he didn't start. He did not begin, he was not created. Everything else was created, he made it. He never started. Therefore, the full and right interpretation of John 1.1 1, 1 is that the Word, God the Son, is preexistent and co-eternal with the Father and, of course, with the Spirit as well. His name is, just as much as the Father, I am, or I exist, is how I like to translate Yahweh from the Old Testament. Moses asked God, what's your name? God said, I exist. That's all you need to know. That's my name. I am. Always have. Always will exist. When everything else began, began, he, God the Son, continually, perpetually, eternally was. He is God eternal. 
But that's only the first of the three exultant truths about Jesus Christ in this verse. The second exultant truth is that he is God distinct. He is God distinct. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. You say, well, that's not too shocking. Nothing too dramatic about that. Then you read on to the rest of the verse. He was in the beginning, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now I'm confused, right? Already in the first verse, I mean, this is amazing. In the first verse of his gospel, John is introducing to us the doctrine of the Trinity. One God, eternally existing in three distinct persons. Three and one at the same time. Now, there's nothing especially shocking about saying that the word was with God. It's the fact that he is God and distinct from God at the same time that's a little bit mind-numbing. Now, let's first focus in on this idea of God distinct. The word was with God. The word translated with there, that little preposition, especially emphasized being with another person. I mean, with another person. Kind of implied being face-to-face in an intimate relationship. In other words, the word was eternally pre-existing, and he was in that existence in a personal face-to-face relationship with God the Father. That relationship included a lot of things. According to John's gospel, it included glory. It includes communion or companionship. It includes also enduring indescribable divine love. To show you that, turn over to John chapter 17. Jesus in his high priestly prayer in John 17 mentions this. Especially those three aspects of his pre-time relationship with the Father. John 17, verse 5. Jesus is praying. He says, Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. What are the Father and the Son and the Spirit doing there in the Trinity before there's anything else? Well, they're sharing in the glory of each other. God the Son had a relationship with God the Father for all eternity. It was a relationship of perpetual, inexpressible glory. It's also a relationship of deep, rich communion. Verse 20 of John 17. I do not ask on behalf of these alone. Jesus is now praying for the disciples and for you and me, everyone who will believe through the preaching of the apostles. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word. What does he ask? I ask that they may all be one, unity, vital. Why? Because God is one. Even as you, Father, are in me and I in you. What are the Father and the Son doing for all eternity? They're having this deep, close, intimate relationship. And it's a relationship of love. Look over at verse 24. Father, says Jesus, I desire that they, that's you and me, all believers in Jesus Christ, I desire that they also, whom you have given to me, be with me where I am. One of my favorite statements in all of the Bible. I desire that they be with me where I am so that they may see my glory, which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world's. He's looking back at John 1, 1, when Jesus said, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, well, we now know what He and the Father were doing, and the Holy Spirit, what they were doing. They were sharing in this rich, deep, glorious love. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God. Now, the distinctness of the words from the Father is seen all over the Gospel of John, As the Father sends the Son, He speaks to the Son from heaven for the sake of sinners. He even forsakes the Son at the crucifixion. There is no room in John's Gospel for what is called modalism. Modalism is the idea that God is one person who appears in three different modes. 
Sometimes he's the father and then zoop, he does a quick little change and then he's the son and then zoop, and then he's the spirit. Never each one at the same time. Sometimes one, sometimes the other. John says, you know what? It's not like Clark Kent and Superman. The father and the son, they can be in the same place at the same time. You can see them both. The word was with God. He is a distinct being. God distinct. Now, as I said, that's not shocking by itself. We can deal with that. When you combine it with the last line of John 1.1 1, 1 is when we start to get a little bit fuzzy, right? When the grandeur and glory and mystery of the Trinity comes into focus. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. That should cause a bit of a double take. The Word is with God and God at the same time. Well... Jesus Christ is exalted above all because he is God eternal, he is God distinct, and he is, thirdly, God equal. God equal. Now, as you probably know, the Jehovah's Witnesses make much of this verse where it says the Word was with God, the Word was God. They make much of this verse. They say, oh, but there's no the there in the Greek, and that's true as far as it goes. There's no the there, and so it should be translated, the word was a God. And of course, what they mean by that is that Jesus is some kind of lesser sub-God of some sort or another. And this, the JWs would say, is the only true grammatical way to translate John 1.1. It's a translation that would put Jesus somewhere below the Father, some kind of sub-deity. Divine, yes, but not fully divine. Divine, yes, but not fully eternal, and so on. Now, those guys come to my door in Pretoria. Um, They put a big X on my gate. They don't come back uh, anymore for some reason. I don't know why that is. Um, But uh, they they come to our doors there in Pretoria as well, and I'm sure they do here in Omaha too. And so, So let me just interact with that just for a second with you. I won't kill you with a bunch of details, but let me just give you some thoughts here. First of all, I would suggest to you that Jehovah's Witnesses are very selective, very selective about where they apply this supposedly absolute translational principle. If there's no the, then you must translate it a God. They're very selective about where they, where they, uh, or how they apply this. The noun theos in Greek, God, the noun God is used 282 times in the New Testament without the word the in front of it. It's used a lot more than that, but without the word the in front of it, 282 times. Only in 16 of those 282 times do the Jehovah's Witnesses translate it as they do here in John 1.1. So much for the idea of an absolute translational principle, right? Only in 16 of those 282. In other words, 266 times out of 282, they violate what they say is an absolute rule if you talk to them here about John 1.1. If you could do the math quickly, I'd need to do a calculator. My toes wouldn't work even if I took my shoes off. But if I did the math, it comes out to 6% of the time Jehovah's Witnesses are faithful to their absolute translational principle. In fact, they violate it here in John 1, repeatedly. John 1, 1 to 18, the word God is used eight times without the word the in front of it in Greek. Six of those eight times, they, in their own New World Translation, do not translate it God because the translation is so obviously incorrect. In other words, they're playing games with you. When they come to your gate... We have gates, sorry. You probably don't have gates in your house. We have fences and barbed wire and stuff like that. So when they come to your door, I need to write. When they come to your door, they talk to you about their New World Translation. And the fact is, they're playing games. The translators of the New World Translation knew it very well. The issue is not grammar at all. It's their theological pre-commitments. If they had applied their rule faithfully, they would have translated verse 1 as, In a beginning was the word. But they don't translate it that way. Why? Well, there has no the. Why don't they translate it that way? Because it's so obviously the beginning of all beginnings. In the same way, verse 4 should read, In him was a life. But instead it reads, In him is the life. Even though the the is not there in Greek, it's obviously intended to be there. 
Here's another point you may not be aware of, probably those things you are aware of. There actually was a perfectly good word in Greek, a perfectly acceptable and common word in Greek that would say that the word here, our Lord Jesus Christ, was divine but not fully God, only somewhat divine. There was a common Greek word for that. It was the word theios. They took the word theos, God, and they put an I, basically, in the middle of it. Theios. And theios meant you had kind of a subdivine being. John didn't use that word. He could have if he had intended to communicate that. John said the word was theos. He is God. He is not merely semi-divine. He is not a sub-deity. Here's another important point. This moves us to the positive. The lack of a definite article or the in Greek usually points towards quality or essence. If you get your Greek grammar out, I'm sure Pat has got you all uh, got those for you studying Greek. If you get your Greek grammar out and you look it up and say if there's no the in Greek there, normally that emphasizes quality or essence. And you might be familiar with when we talk about the qualifications of an elder in 1 Timothy 3. And it talks about a, a, a husband of one wife. And most preachers will rightly explain that and say it's not the number of wives that's the issue there. It, it was illegal in the Roman Empire to have more than one wife in that time period. And so the issue there is the quality is by quality a man with one wife. He is by quality a one-woman kind of man. You may be familiar with that terminology. Well, it's the same idea here. What John is saying is that the word is both with God as a distinct person and is at the same time by quality God. John has, in fact, done an amazing thing here. It's absolutely astounding what he's done. He has taught the doctrine of the Trinity in ten words. I can't do that. I'm proving that to you right now, aren't I? I can't do that, but by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, John, in the divine genius of God, teaches you the doctrine of the Trinity in ten words. And in English, at least, not one of them is even longer than one syllable. There's no consubstantial or anything like that going on. In the beginning was the words. The word was with God, and the word was by quality God. That's a ten-word lesson on the Trinity. The Word and God the Father are distinct, but share exactly the same essence. And isn't that what Hebrews 1.3 says? He is the radiance of the Father's glory, the exact representation of His nature. Distinct person, exact same essence. In John 1.1, John has chosen the most concise way possible in the Greek language to express the doctrine of the Trinity. It's amazing. If you had the Spirit then, as we of course would, if you had the Spirit of God, you have one God eternally existing in three persons. Now, Having examined the leaves, the branches, the bark, the roots, and all that of the tree, let's just pull back for a moment and see the forest, shall we? Let's consider the forest, the, the meaning of this grand statement here in John 1.1. 1, 1. What this means, plain and simply, is that Jesus Christ is exalted above all. There is absolutely no one like him. He is exalted above all as the God-man because he is God's. He is God in eternity past. He is God at creation. He is God when he takes on humanity in Mary's womb. He is God at his birth. He is God when he is learning to swing a hammer in Joseph's workshop. He is God when he is tired and thirsty and hungry during his ministry years. He is God on the cross when he's dying for your sins. He is God when he rises from the dead. He is God forever. In him, the fullness of deity dwells, present tense, in bodily form, says Colossians 2. He is God forever, the God-man. One person, two natures, divine and human. Two natures, unmixed, unconflicting. And you know, Jesus wasn't shy about declaring who he was. It's all over the Gospel of John. John 10, 31, I and the Father are one. 
John 14, 9, he who has seen me has seen the Father. In John 8, 58, Jesus claimed the Old Testament name of God, Yahweh, or I am, I exist, with all of its eternal overtones. John starts his gospel in this amazing, profound manner. These exalting declarations about our Lord Jesus Christ. He is God eternal, God distinct, and God equal. And he summarizes that in verse 2. He was in the beginning with God. Now, some of you are getting very hopeful looking at the clock saying, hey, he said he was going to cover verses two, 1 and 2. And he's done. I'm not done. And let me tell you why I'm not done. Having said all that I've said so far, I've left something absolutely critical unexplained. See, if I was done, you should fire me. You wouldn't have to necessarily take me out in the parking lot and stone me yet, but you would at least fire me if I was your preacher, because I haven't done my job. I failed in my duty as an expositor, and you say, well, why is that, Joel? I haven't yet explained the most obvious word in the verse, have I? The most obvious word in the verse is John's title for Jesus Christ, the Word. We can't escape this text without knowing something about that. What is this title, the Word? In fact, this is an utterly unique, distinct title. Where in the world does John get this title for Jesus Christ? He does not use this title anywhere else in the rest of his gospel outside of this prologue. In fact, no other New Testament author uses this title for Jesus Christ. It's found only here, in these short verses, in the beginning of the Gospel of John. Why does John call Jesus the Word? Why does he call him that, something that he doesn't do anywhere else and no one else does? Well, the Greek word, as you probably know, is the word logos. It's the word logos. In the beginning was the logos, and the logos was with God, and the logos was God. Say, so what does that title mean? Well, let me explain. Let me explain because here we reach the pinnacle. Here we reach the pinnacle of the Christ-exalting spire on the top of the cathedral of John 1.1. 1, 1. John, in a stroke of divinely produced genius, draws together two profound threads with this title, Logos, or the Word. Let me give you the background. Let me give you the background. We'll start with the Greek background, and there's going to be a Hebrew Old Testament background as well, and both are critical, and both are intended by John. Let's start with the Greek. In an educated Greek kind of culture, they love their philosophy and all that sort of thing. The term logos was actually fairly common. It was a well-established term, a well-established concept. Commentator Leon Morris again sums it up pretty well, talking about Greek philosophy and their thinking. He says, the logos was an all-pervading principle. The rational principle of the universe. We might say it's kind of the, you know, the, the, the unifying principle, a physicist might call it. Morris continues, it was a creative energy in Greek thought. All things in one sense came from it. The use of this term would have brought to the educated Greek mind thoughts of something supremely great. It was the stabilizing, directing principle of, of the universe, writes Morris. Now, that's part of the background of the word logos, and I think intentionally used by John to capture the attention of his Greek readers. He wants to draw them in to understand the greatness and the grandeur of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so in speaking of Jesus, John makes it clear with the title Logos that he is referring to something supremely great. Now, there's a second thread as well. This is a Hebrew Old Testament background of this concept. Let me take you back again in your minds to Genesis chapter 1. How did God create the universe in Genesis 1? Chemistry kit, some assembly required, right? Batteries not included. No, not at all. God creates the universe by speaking with a spoken 
word with the logos. And God said, let there be light and so on. Genesis 1 used the word word or speaking for God speaking his mind, speaking his mind with omnipotent creative force. The universe that God imagined in his mind, he spoke or logos into existence. But you know what? That's not all. When you go through the Old Testament, you realize that God not only creates by speaking, but all over the Old Testament, God reveals himself by speaking. He is a talking God. It's one of the most amazing things about God. Some of you are very godly, no doubt. You reflect that aspect of God. God is a talking God. How do you know his mind? How do you know his will? How do you know what God delights in, rejoices in, what he hates and loathes? Well, by what he says. He reveals by speaking. Is speaking the Ten Commandments, for example, at Mount Sinai? That's an obvious example of God revealing himself with words. How about all those prophetic announcements of the Old Testament? Thus saith the Lord. For the Hebrew mind, you see, God's word, God's logos, God's speaking was a powerful, accurate revelation of his mind and his character. What he is thinking and who he is. Now, what John does is brings those thoughts. Let's wrap our arms now around the Greek idea and the Hebrew ideas both. Right? Let's wrap our arms around both of them. He brings them together here in this term, this title for Jesus Christ. It's an amazing title. It's a never heard of before combination used by John to express the glory of our Lord and Savior. His use of the word logos is basically totally new as you bring those, all those threads together. In fact, I would suggest to you as a translator, I would say there is, in fact, no English word. There is no one English word that can wrap its arms all the way around both the Greek and the Hebrew backgrounds. Let me show you this. For the Greek, we might say something like this. We were translating John 1.1. In the beginning was the controlling, guiding principle of the universe. Not very personal, but that was their idea, in the beginning was the controlling, guiding principle of the universe. The principle was with God, and that principle was God's. But that doesn't cut it, right? The principle in it doesn't cut it because John's not describing a law of nature. He's not describing an abstract philosophical concept. John's talking about a person. Capital P, please. He's talking about a person. It's not a principle at all. The supremely great thing in Greek philosophy, well, that might have been a principle, might have been a concept, might have been a force. John brushes that aside. He throws that aside and declares that the supremely great thing in the universe is a person. So what Paul is driving at in Colossians 1, where he says, by him all things were created. That controlling, creative principle, it's Christ. He is before all things. In him all things hold together. Jesus Christ is the unifying principle. Jesus Christ is the Logos, the controlling creative person who began and sustains the universe. The pinnacle of the glory of God in the universe, the underlying power that made and sustains all things is not a philosophical abstraction. It is a person to be loved. God's the eternal God, God the Son, who is with the Father and yet God at the same time. But of course that idea of a controlling principle doesn't wrap its arms around the idea of speaking yet. And so we need to bring that in too. We have to have a second equally important way to translate or think about John 1.1. 1, 1. As the word, Jesus is the revealer of the mind, the character, and the nature of God. Not only is he creator and controller of the universe, he is the revealer of God. But here's something important. You're getting a lot of Greek today, sorry, but I'm not sorry. You're getting a lot of Greek today. Here's something very important. The word logos 
did not so much refer to an individual Greek word. There was another word for that, rhema. Logos usually referred to a series of words put together in a sentence or a paragraph or a book. And so the idea of message is really what lies behind the idea of logos. It's a group of words all working together, in this case, to reveal God and his character. And so what John is saying is that Jesus Christ is not just the controlling person of the universe. He is that. But he is also the message. He is also the report. He is the proclamation. He's the instruction, the declaration, the revelation of God. I think we can put that in one word. And because I'm a preacher, I'm going to say it this way. According to John 1.1, Jesus is God's sermon. Jesus is God's sermon. That's what John is saying. He is the word, meaning the message, meaning the sermon of God. That's a legitimate way to translate the word logos, and I would suggest to you that maybe that's how we should translate it here. Now think about it, and you'll realize how appropriate it is. God has been preaching from Genesis 1, verse 1 onwards. He's been preaching from that time onwards. When God speaks the creation into existence, those words, let there be lights, for example, they are a sermon. They are a sermon about Him, His glory, His majesty, His power. Psalm Psalm 19 says it, doesn't it? The heavens do what? They sermonize. They preach. They declare the glory of God. Day to day, writes David, pours forth speech. Then he adds there, you remember, oh, well, there's, there's no audible voice. You don't hear it, but you know what? You and I have both watched a sunrise and a sunset, and we have heard the voice of God in what we saw. We have heard the sermon of God declaring his glory. Their beauty, sunrise and sunset, it's an echo of the voice of the one who called them into being. Creation is a sermon. That's how Psalm 19 described it. The Ten Commandments were a sermon given in an audible divine voice. The pulpit is Mount Sinai and God himself comes down and preaches. I would have liked to have been there. The sermon had a very easy outline. Ten points. It was a sermon. God's voice was so great that it terrified the people. They scattered, they ran in fear, trying to escape the inescapable God. God preached through the prophets in all the years of the Old Testament. Thus saith the Lord was the way they started their messages. But you know what? What John says here in John 1.1, 1, 1, what he says here is that all those sermons, preliminary. All those sermons were just preparatory. Important, certainly. They were preliminary. They were preparatory. They were just preface. The sermon that explains God, the sermon that reveals God's glory and God's mind and God's character and God's salvation better than any other is the sermon, our Lord Jesus Christ. You remember the words of Hebrews 1, don't you? God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days, he has spoken to us in his Son. God is a talking God. And Jesus Christ is his favorite sermon. In the beginning was the sermon. The sermon was with God and the sermon was God. And now let's pick up those other verses from the prologue. How about verse 14? God's sermon became flesh and dwelt among us. No one, verse 18, has seen God at any time. But the sermon, Jesus Christ our Lord, has explained him. 
John presents Jesus as creator and controller of the universe in John 1.1. But he also presents him as God's word, God's message. God, my friends, is a preacher. And Jesus Christ is his best sermon. When you see Jesus' compassion for sinners, when you see his power over the storms, when you see his anger at self-righteous pride, you are hearing God's best sermon on those subjects. When you see Jesus heal the sick, forgiving the cast-offs, God is preaching about himself. When you see Jesus dying on the cross in self-sacrificial love, bearing the just wrath of God that you and I deserve, when you see that, that's a sermon. God's preaching about himself. Jesus is the word. The sermon, the one who explains God better than any other because he is God. He has been with the Father from the beginning, from before all beginnings, says John. Face to face with God, an intimate, knowing, loving relationship. More than that, he is God. And he came. He came permanently adding humanity to his eternal divine existence so that he could explain God to us. To you. Whatever you do, don't miss the sermon. Whatever you do, don't miss God's best sermon. Jesus is the message about God, He is the way to God. Believe in Him, and you will be saved. In the beginning was the sermon. The sermon was with God, and the sermon was God. Jesus is God's final word. He's his best sermon. Let's pray. Lord, as we think of our great Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, today, as we think of it through, think of you, our God and Savior, and your beloved Son, through the lens of this passage, we realize the greatness and the glory of Christ We've all seen the sunrise and seen the glory of God on display, but in Christ, the light is brighter. The glory is more profound. We've heard the word of God read. We know the testimony of the spirits through your words in our hearts. But as we look at Jesus Christ, we see and hear the clearest exposition of God. Thank you that you sent your son to die for us, to explain yourself to us. Lord, we rejoice to know your son, to have heard your greatest sermon. I pray for this beloved church that they would love you, that they would love your son, and that they would delight in him, and they would always listen to your greatest, greatest sermon, Jesus Christ. In your name we pray, amen.